A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. So, you've got an idea for a business, the store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out everything. That's why Shopify's all in one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com slash listen. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything, has its own history, like honey, canoes and ants. <laughs> oh, 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 very good. I want to do the history of ants, I think, but I also want to do the history of tea. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I think the history of tea mm. would be a good one. And the history of smugness. I've been wanting to. There we go. I've been wanting an excuse to read a, a very good book on the history of Schadenfreude for mm. a long time. Or we could do Heather, Weather, and Feather, Clever Endeavour, and Hell for Leather. Is <laughs> the history of being of being really fast at things. Um, however, we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining extraordinarily carefully how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew, well, you should have known if you've listened to our recent podcast, but who knew that the history of bad habits is in fact all about intoxication, alcohol, tobacco and drugs. It's about the material culture of early modern women's consumption of tobacco. Think hidden political meanings in snuff boxes. It's about female power and agency. It's about gambling. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's addicted detective, Sherlock Holmes. It's about cocaine, heroin and the Vietnam War. Or that the history of cheese, which is one of my very favourite recent ones, is in fact all about Samuel Pepys and the Great Fire of London of 1666. It's about witches and magic via fortune-telling, love potions, malevolent acts with cheese. It's about Homer's odyssey and a cheese-making cyclops. It's about the Flemings. It's about ethnic cleansing in the Middle Ages, mm. the Peasants' Revolt in 1381 and Lost Knowledge. What a whopper! Was a whopper, wasn't it? That was a great one. I loved that. The I forgot about the ethnic cleansing. Cheese is all about ethnic oh. cleansing in the Middle Ages. Who knew that? Um, you're probably wondering who's telling you all these wonderful facts. Let me just say that if bias and lies and historical mystery were a giant posing a Goliath of a challenge to us mere mortals, this man would be David. In fact, he would be Michelangelo's David statue with his leather sling slung in a leathery way nonchalantly <laughs> across his shoulder, poised to do battle. Uh, if you want to hear more about that, then do listen to our podcast on posing. It was very good. Uh, he is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, Sam. Hello. Thank you for that lovely introduction. And the man not sitting opposite me, because we are still... Social distancing during lockdown 3.0. Well, let's just say if he were a leather-related historian, he'd only 
arguably be the world's most famous leatherman, father of the bard William Shakespeare and glover extraordinaire John Shakespeare, a man who knew every inch of the leather industry, got his skin, skinned them, tanned them, dried them, cut them, stitched them and sold them since his workshop was production-come-retail site. Yes, you know it. It's the legendary, the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, everyone. Um, we're doing leather. It's an interesting topic. James, this is definitely one of yours. You've been, you've been harping on about doing leather for ages, and I'm delighted oh God, that we've I've finally been, done it. I've been part of a network for the last two years working with historical leather specialists huh. from across the country. So, And the other day, I sat down with the brilliant Mike Redwood, uh, and my friend and co-writer of the Gloves book, uh, the wonderful Susan Broomhall, and Mike gave us a masterclass about historical leather. Um, he he has an extraordinary knowledge that is breathtaking. This is a man who has worked in the leather industry for decades and has a profound historical, forensic, archaeological knowledge of how to read historical leather you know which when when you come at when you come at an object or at a material as a historian who's normally trained in reading you know documents that are normally in printed books you know when you or you get into the archives and you see the originals themselves but actually meeting somebody who knows how to read physical objects and interpret them with great skill is a real art. So I'm going to be talking a little bit about about that and may, maybe some stuff on gloves. Um, <laughs> but um, there may be some at the end on gloves. But it but it's yeah it's been it's been a fascinating leathery journey. Mm. Interesting. I'm going to start by talking about uh, Ben Franklin and Mrs. Ah. Silence Doogood. Have you heard of Mrs. Silence Doogood? No, but it sounds fascinating. Oh, it, uh, really, really intriguing stuff, this, actually. Um, this is... Silence Duguid is a pen name for someone that... Benjamin Franklin, he, yes, the Benjamin Franklin, very big, important person during the American Revolution. Um, when he's a child, he... Uh, uh, how do I start this? Well, it, first of all, he, he... His father takes him away from school... And he's he then works for his dad. He's a, a, a candle and a soap maker, so in the tallow industry. Uh, Benjamin Franklin doesn't like the work. And so his father, worried that Ben's going to run away to sea, takes him to, um, well, all around Boston's workshops. And he ends up working for his brother, James, who is a printer. Now, Benjamin's, are, um, and if you ever read the Ben Franklin letters, they're just, they're truly wonderful. They're so sparkly and you realise how how bright he is. He he finds himself working in a print shop and he starts submitting letters anonymously to, or he starts submitting letters under his own name um, to uh, a local, local, uh, local publication and he doesn't get them published. And so he adopts a pen name uh, of Silence Doogood, and she's a middle-aged widow. And uh, she's absolutely fascinating in the way that she... uh, She has very salty language, she's got a very sharp tongue, she has a very egalitarian ethos, she's funny, she's profane, very colloquial, really sympathetic with people living in in America at the time. And um, 
the first letter is what I want to read you because in in this Benjamin Franklin sets out what he's trying to do as a satirist with Silence Duguid's letters and he uses the term leather apron man. Sir, it may not be possible in the first place to inform your readers that I intended once a fortnight to present them by the help of this paper with a short epistle, which I presume will add somewhat to their entertainment. And since it is observed that the generality of people nowadays are unwilling either to commend or dispraise what they read until they are in some measure informed who or what the author of it is, whether he be poor or rich, old or young, a scholar or a leather apron man, and give their opinion of the performance according to the knowledge which may have of the author's circumstances, it may not be amiss to begin with a short account of my past life and present condition, that the reader may not be a loss to judge whether or no my lucubrations are worth his reading. So just drawing your attention here to how he has talked about the type of people, a poor man, rich man, old or young, a scholar or a leather apron man. And that's what I want to talk about very briefly. Historians for years believe that he talked, uh, he's talking about an artisan, basically, someone who made shoes or built houses or printed books like his brother. Um, and Benjamin is identify himself as being part of this leather apron class or someone with a leather apron outlook in this letter. But it's actually much more complicated than that. Um, the term leather apron man is very, very old indeed. So he's writing at the beginning of the 18th century here. And it's already been a colloquial term in England for at least a century and a half. It appears in two Shakespeare plays. It appears in polemical works, um, various religious tracts. And what the, the, it, I mean, the, the apron itself—it's a—it's a workman's apron. It's—it's—it's it's, it's protective. It's got useful pockets for t- small tools or nails, whatever it might be. And it's something that identifies you with a, a lowly status of craft work. And what this term therefore does is it kind of opens a window into class hostility at the time. And usually the term leather apron, I mean, for over a century and a half, as I said, has been used as an insult about someone who may have come from poor circumstances, who then goes on to become a gentleman. You've got a sense of someone being a leather apron man who is then becoming a countryman. But what Franklin is doing in this letter is actually completely different. He's turning this class-based insult of being a leather apron man into a badge of honour, into an honorific title. He's saying, yes, I'm one of these standing beside all of you merchants, farmers, and clergymen that a leather apron man is of equivalence to, of equivalence to that, um, and so it's really interesting, basically, seeing how Franklin is being a, like a master satirist. He's actually changing the way a term is used. He's changing it from an insult to something to be respected. He's he's like a true politician that he is. He's he's allying himself with the artisans with the working class of America at the time of the 18th century. So there you are, James, a bit of leather aproning stuff and what that actually means in America in the 18th century. Oh, Sam, that was terrific. I want to take us from leather aprons to the National Leather Collection in Northampton, which was the Leather Museum, which is an extraordinary place. Um, And as part of the network, we've been working with the terrific Victoria Green, uh, who has been incredibly helpful in uh, providing me with all sorts of facts about 
about leather gloves hidden up chimneys and things like that. So she's a brilliant person. But but anyway, she's in charge of this wonderful collection. Um, and it was founded as the Museum of Leathercraft in London in, the, in 1946, so just after the Second World War. And it part, it's set up by the London livery companies, the leather industry, and the idea was to basically hold the largest collection of objects, items, and also information, you know, books about the, the leather world. Um, and they have an incredible amount of stuff in there. They've got over 5,000 unique items. And in their library, they have over 3,000 books on the subject. And the story goes that one of the sort of founding fa fathers uh, of the, the National Leather Collection uh, was a real sort of inspirational figure. And what he did was he sent everyone out with five pounds, which at the time was... Um, you know, it was 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 quite a was quite a thing. Um, this is a guy called John Waterer, and he sent the um, he sent people out to find things, and they literally went out. Uh, and this was a period, you know, post Second World War, when actually the market for these kinds of things was pretty fluid, and you could go out and 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 buy all sorts of things. It's when a lot of American libraries um, sent buyers over to Britain to buy up lots of rare 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century books and transport them back to be the basis of their collections. It's what the Folger Shakespeare Library did, sort of hoovering up, you know, great sort of collections of, of, of Shakespeare. But people, you know, went all over the place and they ended up with some extraordinary things. Do you know they've got ancient Egyptian underpants? They've got uh, skin from the toll man, so an ancient man. They've got um, Samuel Pepys's wallet, I think. Uh, they've got uh, some things of the parts of the Dead Sea Scrolls. They've got leather belts that were used to drive machines in the Industrial Revolution, all the way through to things that are very... Um, you know, that are very contemporary, that are about craft work and design to this very day. So it's an extraordinary collection. And I think one of the things that is really interesting about it is the way in which not only does it tell us the history of leather across time, the cultural meanings of leather, the different uses of leather, but also there is a sense in which there's a lot of really interesting conservation work that's going on. Um, and some really interesting work is being done on different types of leather at the moment by archaeologists employing all sorts of techniques. And now that we're now that we've got DNA analysis, you know, they're able to tell quite a lot of things about the kinds of um, the kinds of leather that survive. Um, and I'm just going to give you one example that I saw recently from Cambridge University um, archaeology team. Uh, and it, I think the guy who's heading it up is a, an archaeologist called Matthew Collins. Um, and he, um, he has... What they've done is they've discovered a 500-year-old manuscript which is on parchment. And parchment, of course, is parchment or vellum is of course um, treated animal skins. You know, so it's so it's basically leather. Uh, one of the reasons that 
um, Cistercian monks in the high Middle Ages start keeping herds and herds of sheep, you know, vast thousands of them, is to produce is to produce parchment, so to capture their writings. And what they found is a piece of parchment that they think is basically a birthing girdle. So it's the kind of it's it's a manuscript that women would have worn around themselves in a sort of talismanic way. And and you look at it and there are all sorts of devices on it that, you know, that talk about, you know, about the sort of birthing ritual and prayers for, you know, for, for safe delivery. And what they've done is they have examined it and it contains ancient proteins from cervico-vaginal fluid within the weave of the parchment. So basically you're able to you're able to sort of detect its use as a during um during birthing. Uh, and it's inscribed, as I said, with these prayers for safe delivery, uh, you know, all of those kinds of things. And it seems to me remarkable the way in which what we have here is interest in leather, with archaeology, with DNA DNA analysis. And and this sort of forensic study of of manuscripts, which is which is being termed biocodicology, so it's looking at the biological information that is stored in ancient manuscripts. And here, for you know, this is a a leather manuscript. For me, the interesting the interesting application of this to the work that I've been doing on gloves is that actually what it does is this kind of analysis enables you to detect precisely what kind of leather it is. And one of the problems with a lot of the leather that we have in historical collections of leather gloves is that we don't actually know precisely what leather it is. It's often very vague. Uh, And it's actually hard to tell unless you are a real expert precisely what the to precisely identify whether it is whether it's cow whether it's sheep whether it's kid and of course all of these have very different properties in terms of the quality of the leather that's produced now traditional approaches are to look at things either through a a magnifying glass or through a microscope and what you're looking for is you're looking for the you're looking for the texture and you're looking for follicles of hair that are left. Now, if this has been messed up too badly or it has been swayed, it's quite difficult to tell that. So the DNA analysis, I think, opens up new vistas. And of course, what kind of leather is being used has important social and cultural meaning. And one of the rarest, most sort of um, one of the most highly prized forms of leather is in, Sp- is in fact Spanish leather. And the reason that it's so highly prized is because of its softness, its quality and its durability. And it is connected to the kinds of animal husbandry that are that were in in Spain around the 16th century. Because if you compare the kinds of um, sheep that one has in the UK at that time, because of the weather conditions, they tend to have much uh, higher levels, much thicker levels of fat between uh, between the skin and the and the and the flesh of the body, um, and that is actually when you when you when you skin an animal in order to prepare its hide for leather, you've got to you've got to take off that 
that flesh layer, that sort of fat layer, and um, and that can often cause damage. And so one of the complaints that um, that various people who are trying to produce things out of leather, you know, either glovers or shoemakers, is the quality of leather that they're getting. Whereas in the in the the hotter climate in Spain, you're getting uh, what are called hair sheep, which have short hair rather than the sort of great fleece. They're very it's very difficult to detect them from from goats, but actually they have um, very little fat and they produce a beautifully soft leather. And today, most of the leather that is used in the gloving industry, in fact, comes from Ethiopia. And you've got a very, you know, a very sort of special kind of leather that is produced from from their animals over there. So two, two of the sort of big leather producing countries today are Spain and Ethiopia. And that itself has an extraordinary history. So there we are, a little sort of tour from, um, hmm. you know, manuscripts connected to childbirthing, uh, Egyptian underpants, uh, uh, ancient the skin of ancient man, um, and Samuel Pepys's wallet, and how to read, how to read leather. <laughs> Very good indeed. James, I came across a wonderful uh, article by Carol Von Driel Murray, uh, have you heard of Carol Van Driel Murray? She's. Uh, she... I, I haven't heard of Carol Von Driel Murray. Oh, she's an expert. On, I like the on, name on on, uh, on leather, um, and particularly she's written about leather in the Roman context, and she's written a wonderful article on the discovery of leather bikinis, as they're described. A leather bikini found at the bottom of a well in London in Queen Street in 1953, and I just wanted to talk briefly about the various issues that she raises because I think they're important and also fascinating. Um, so it's the way that the press kind of reacted to it and also the way that uh, male writers and male archaeologists um, interpreted it and actually how unhelpful that has been. So first up, it was called a bikini, um, even though there was no matching top has ever been found. And, and briefs is a is a is better description. There, there are various uh, different examples of these, not the only one that's been found. And some are certainly quite skimpy and some are, are not. They are much, much uh, broader and bigger. There's another one um, was found. And in, uh, this was also found near uh, near a watchtower in Shadwell. Interestingly, they were both found in what could be kind of votive offering deposi- uh, depositions. They were uh, they were underwater. They were at the bottom of wells. Um, the the initial argument in the press was all to do with sex, basically, and the beliefs that this was somehow to do with entertainment for military soldiers, that these were uh, perhaps dancing girls, and a lot of kind of ribald, um, you know, guessing at the time. Um, the, the the briefs themselves are kind of held together by very skimpy, small pieces of, of like leather leather thongs, basically, which had been torn apart, which had been broken, which again led to a huge amount of conjecture in the press, which has been really quite unhelpful to the way that um, we need to think about these. And this is essentially what the article is all about. There are other examples of bikinis with, like these briefs which have been discovered, but very, very few. There are a couple in Europe. The majority of them, in fact, most of the ones that have been discovered are actually in London. So there's something strange going on there. 
and trying to understand exactly what it is is a real challenge to archaeologists. Um, how do you interpret it? Well, one of the things they did was to look at figurines, um, contemporary figurines of young female athletes wearing comparable garments. But all these you've got here is these. Um, yes, you've got women engaged in sport and gymnastics. But in fact, that's the only situation historians believe that women were actually likely to appear in public in their undergarments. Um, Roman authors have got plenty to report on male bathing, for example, but there is silent, completely silent on how women spent their leisure. So there's a real gap in the history here, a gap in our understanding. What sort of social activities women indulged in amongst themselves is, is basically of no interest to male writers. And that's why it hasn't survived the times. Um, so we've got this issue of, of what, how women dressed and their activities being concealed from view. And, you know, these these leather briefs actually, you know, fit into something that will help us understand now that they may have been infrequent, but certainly seem to have been a regular piece of female apparel. And how they were used is something that really needs to be considered in a more thoughtful way rather than assuming it was entertainment for soldiers. Um, the suggestions put forward in this article is perhaps they were for medical reasons um, and there are um, another of another uh, menstrual bands is another suggestion. What they're made of, James, you were talking about what they were made of. And I think this is interesting because they're made of vegetable tanned goat skin, which is certainly waterproof. It's quite strong. It's relatively thin. But from what we know about the softness of leather available to people in the Roman period, that we believe that actually if these were going to be worn as intimate undergarments, then uh, having uh, some kind of oil-treated skin like chamois leather would be preferable. The existence of these briefs also allows us to think and to talk about Roman body size. It's very difficult kind of comparing what happened in the past to people's understanding of body size now and what people thought about body size. But it's certainly something which opens up the entire debate on on what, what you know, we, we look at these and we think they're small. But how does how do we actually um, interpret that? And how do we think about uh, about the sizing of clothes in the Roman period? Oh, I love that. I love that. And that connects to the, the sizing of gloves, hmm. you know, um, and the difference between gloves that are simply, you know, that are simply generic and cut to fit a sort of, um, you know, all sorts of hands. So large, medium, small for men, women and children, or those that are that are sort of specifically cut to size to fit an individual's hands and how you know and the meaning of that but I just want to end very briefly uh, just by returning to gloves because I think this is really what's got me thinking about leather and this is sort of some musings about it because I think one of the things that I needed to do as a historian was who's used to working with documents and has come out of a background of working with letters and manuscripts um, is is actually learning how to how to read an object that is made of leather. So intrinsic in that is actually interpreting historical leather, and and also not just looking at it in terms of the object. So not just doing an object oriented biography, but actually thinking about it, thinking about leather as a way of looking at at a, a glove across its whole sort of life cycle. So in terms of the processes of production. You need to think about how the leather industry worked. You need to think about the sourcing and 
preparation of hides. So that connects you to animal husbandry. It connects you to different geographies and regions in terms of the different qualities that there are. There's a really lovely article about the Woodstock glove industry and there's a brilliant bit there talking about the deer park outside Woodstock which produced uh, doe skin and the Charwell River that runs through Oxford was great for washing the skins as you were preparing it and that process itself imparted a very white quality to the leather so it's thinking about things like that or the increased demand in Europe for hides and skins from North America, it actually disrupted the indigenous tribes, the indigenous peoples in uh, those sort of Great Lakes regions, because effectively what you did was, as the, the menfolk had to go out and hunt more, you know, they were more away from the home. And so women took on different roles within the, uh, you know, within the sort of home sphere um and also there was intermarriage into uh you know um male uh male europeans marrying into um the the indigenous people so that's that's a sort of disruptive effect there then there's the whole process of how you treat leather you know once you've got the skins you need to strip it of the of the fat you need to then dry it you need to tan it and you talked about you know several different sort of types of tanning the different tanning processes would impart different qualities on the leather so you need to know about that in terms of gloves you know you think about the different kinds of leather that are needed for different kinds of gloves gloves that are used for hawking need to be a really tough leather and have a particular form of tan that basically means that a talon won't go through it. You've then got the process of once the leather is is prepared, you've then got to cut it, you've got to sew it, you've then maybe got to send it out to embroiderers to uh, see the size of the glove, to embroider a, a cuff. That then goes back to the um, that then goes back to the glover to be able to you know put the things together. Um, so that's a, that's something that's fascinating. And what I'm particularly interested in is the way in which these processes are gendered. So what roles did men and women have in all of these areas? And and then you've got the leather going out into the marketplace in terms of trade. So looking at how domestically, how the retail market works, but also the transportation overseas um, of of leather you know and and throughout the 16th 17th 18th century there are restrictions on the kinds of things that you can and cannot import and then we have gloves in museums um and what we have preserved is basically high quality high end fashionable gloves they're leather they're preserved and what that does is it actually skews how we look at everyday gloves in the you know, period 1500 to 1800, because, you know, many of the everyday gloves, the knitted gloves, the fabric gloves don't survive. But if you go to paintings, portraits, inventories, expense accounts or expense books, you suddenly see a very different, different world. But one of the, I just want to leave you uh, with an image of limerick gloves. And these were gloves that were produced in Ireland and they're very fine, very thin, um, and so thin, fine, that they could be folded up so small that they could be fitted into a walnut um, shell. 
uh, and several examples of these survive. So I encourage you all to Google Limerick Gloves for, for some images of these, you know, amazing gloves in, in nutshells. So there we are, Sam, a little, little foray into what's been keeping uh, Susan Broomhall and myself busy uh, in recent months. Wonderful stuff, guys. I hope you enjoyed that. I very much did. And we're going to come back with some really uh, fun things. I'm not sure what we're doing next, but we'll, we'll cook something up. Um, do please follow me on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And if you're interested in maritime and naval history, please check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast. And I'm on Twitter at James Daybell. Uh, the podcast itself is all over social media. Follow us on Twitter at Unexpected Pod. Follow us on Instagram. Friend us on Facebook and check out our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com, for everything that we are doing at the moment. That's it for now, guys. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye.